Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, September 3rd, and we're talking about stocks we've recently bought. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's Jason Hall. Jason, stepping away from his computer, making it back just in the nick of time. How are you doing? I am fantastic this morning. I'm excited to be on. And I, I think our, our our listeners on the podcast are going to notice like a consistent up and to the right improvement of, of the quality of my participation in the show as my coffee intake increases over the next half hour. So if you don't like Jason now, just wait 20 minutes until the caffeine really hits. <laughs> Ooh, buddy. That's right. Uh, I'm in the same boat, Jason. Um, and and while I love coffee, uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, co- some companies that we love. Um, I, I think this is a fun show. We're, we're going to be talking about businesses uh, that we've both bought recently. We're, we're bringing three stocks to the conversation. And I will say, just you put it out there to start, uh, shareholder of one of these businesses, obviously bought one of them. But I've interacted with all three of these companies as a consumer in the past week and a half. Which is absolutely wild, and like we talk about doing some kind of scuttlebutt research here and there, I'm definitely guilty of that. Particularly with this first one, we're going to talk about Jason uh, Lemonade. Yeah, it's L- Lemonade is is it's funny because this is a company that I started out. I was really, really, I guess you could say I was really suspicious of their ability to be good at insurance, right? Because you hear a lot about they talk about AI, talk about the technology. Um, Talk about like the social aspect of the way that they're trying to kind of change and kind of disrupt this insurance industry that's been pretty much the same way for like, I don't know, a thousand years, as long as people have been paying somebody else to insure their goods. And I was very suspicious of that. I started exploring the platform, something you and I can actually, we both have in common is like actually trying to be become customers of Lemonade and going through that experience and seeing it learning more about it, hearing more about what their executives have to say about the things that they're doing. And I, and I opened a position. Um, and now, and now I'm also a customer. Yeah. I, I took, uh, the opposite approach. I, I am a customer first ha- before I initiated the position, but I, I had a similar uh, uh, approach there, Jason, where I said, you know, uh, I'm in a position where I'm going to be renting for a little bit. Um, I keep hearing about how dumb, simple, they make the renting process. Uh, if you're, you know, looking for a renter's insurance, and that's really where they specialize. Let me kick the tires on this. And uh, I'm, I'm curious before we even get into the nuts and bolts of, you know, your thesis and why you bought the stock. Uh, I, I felt like the experience as a customer lived up to every expectation I had in terms of how simple it would be. Yeah, yeah, that's that. I went through the exact same thing. And here's an interesting thing about it. So, just a quick backstory. We're in Southern California. We're moving to near Boston. We sold our house. We're staying in it. So we needed renter's insurance for a short period of time. So we got the renter's policy through Lemonade. At the same time, we're going to need homeowner's insurance on the other end. And one of the things that actually impressed me surprisingly was that Lemonade did not even offer us. They went through the process and said, yeah, we can't insure that property for our homeowners. And that actually reassured me about my biggest concern for the business. And that's, are these guys actually going to be good at underwriting insurance? So the fact that they chose to not underwrite um, a a 30-year-old home with an old original roof 
and some other little minor issues says, you know what, they're really focused on making sure that they grow in a smart way and thinking about how they manage risk. And that's been my biggest concern about the business and why I've watched it. But now why I'm why why I decided to become a shareholder is because I think they're figuring out how to underwrite well. Yeah, and I and I think that that's a good point. You want discipline with a business like that because and and you'll see over time I think with this company there's going to be a lot of optionality and a lot of different business segments that they can explore once they have that customer relationship. We're seeing them um you know planning on making some inroads in the car market soon as someone who owns a car and has insurance with somebody else. I'm pretty interested in that. I want to see what that offering looks like. But uh, that's only attractive if for expansion purposes if they're able to properly underwrite and maintain all of their standards, not spread themselves too thin. Because as we know, Jason, when the tide goes out, particularly in, uh, in a business like insurance, it can be pretty destructive if you're not uh, maintaining good standards. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it, right? So I think one of the things that's really interesting about Lemonade, and then you think about SoFi, you know, social financial capital, and some of these other companies that are in the fintech space is over the past decade, we've seen how many other tech companies have come in and moved fast and broken things and done incredibly well. And, and that's great when you're, you know, streaming DVDs, right? Or you're mailing a DVD to somebody. Now you're shifting your business model and you're breaking your business model like, like Netflix did. Um, but when you're talking about financial services and you're talking about having real exposure to very real things in the real world that are very expensive to fix when they break, or you're talking about lending out money, right? And, and the risk, if, if you have a million loans out and then there's a big financial crisis and two or three or 5% of your people stop being able to pay on their loans, there's massive risk and massive exposure <clears throat> that as much as these are tech companies, they're still financial services companies and managing that is really, really important. And I really believe, I really believe strongly that and this is why I bought is at the end of the day, all the other stuff that I think is exciting and disruptive, I think they're proving on, on the, on the underwriting side that they, that they get it and their business model that supports all of the other things is going to be sustainable. And it's going to lead to that optionality you talk about. They started with pet insurance, starting with, with um, renter's insurance, and now steadily expanding these other lines. So Jason, I'm, I'm curious, was being denied a policy with them, the aha moment for you uh, to, to buy the stock or, or did you have one prior to that? It was, it wasn't an aha moment. It would have been an aha. I had actually already bought before that. Um, because this is another one. Um, I was looking at them for, um, also for, uh, a was it term life they do? There was something else that they do. I've actually been rejected by them twice for, for insurance. <laughs> so there was a prior one, uh, that they said, thanks, but no thanks. Um, that was yeah was very much an aha moment. Um, the the homeowners one just kind of reinforced it for me. I think that's a unique take and one that I don't know that most people would have would have arrived at. Like I want to give you some props there for you know because we we talk about the ease of use with a business like this and the whole point of their offering is that they are reducing the friction on the user side, right? And and to be rejected, it would be very easy to I think almost take the personal slight of like, man, I wanted to use this company and I can't, uh, but to, oh, instead... I was pissed. Don't get me wrong. I was, <laughs> I was, I was, but I was, it was hard. And it was because I can be honest with you that first time it, there was a day I'm like, what are these guys doing? I'm like a perfect, I'm should, insurable. <laughs> I'm perfectly. And, and then I started thinking about it and I'm like, you know, what? It's, that's not the point. I'm insurable for somebody, 
But for Lemonade at this phase of their business, they've obviously got some discipline, right? And that's what it told me is that they have some discipline. And that's really that's really the key thing. Um, should we sh- do we have a minute to talk about their business model? I think it. That's yeah, really, yeah. Let's get into that. We yeah, probably I should hit sure. it earlier. <laughs> that's that's okay. I've been. This has been. This is. It's you know me. It's always stream of consciousness. So it, <laughs> it's interesting. But their business model is different, right? So we talk about they're disrupting. Um, what, so what are they doing that's disruptive? So there's a couple things. So the first thing that I guess it's kind of disruptive is the speed, right? That they, that they have, right? So you, you can, you can get a claim or you can get an insurance policy or get told no, in my case, very quickly, right? Within moments to minutes, it's very, very fast process. And then once you're insured, if you do have a claim, it's the same thing. If you, if you file a claim, they say that they will pay you within moments to minutes. And that's, and that's great, right? So that's great, but how do how can you facilitate that for the long term? And the way the company says they're doing it is by changing the economic models and realigning incentives, right? Because the way insurance companies are built, you give them money, and then they find every reason not to give any of that money back to you, right? That's that's the business model. If you're an insurance company, you make money two ways. Number one, you make money investing the float, right? Which is all that money everybody gives before they have to pay claims, right? So some sort of return on bonds or something and sometimes stocks, that kind of thing. But also there's underwriting profit, right? In other words, every dollar that they never have to give back that somebody gave them for their policy, that's an underwriting profit, right? The goal is to profit in both of those ways. What Lemonade is doing is saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a certain percentage. I think it's around 15%. I don't have it right in front of me, but we're going to take that percentage. And that's just, that's our take, right? And then we're going to take everything that's left and we're going to manage some float, but we're also going to buy reinsurance and we're going to use reinsurers to manage all of that risk. See you, buddy. My son's heading off to school. Love you, bud. Have a good day. <laughs> so they're going to take, so, so, so they build, so they build that into their, <clears throat> into their platform, right? So it's like automatically their economic incentives are clear on the front side. And then they have the money that's left over. That's largely used to, for reinsurers to reinsure those policies. So there's no incentive for lemonade to, to, to deny claims, right? The incentive is for them to retain customers. The next part of it is this is a certified B Corp and every member, every insurance member picks a, picks a, 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 a charity and whatever money's left over from that pool at the end of the year, they divide it up amongst all of those members charities and they give it away. And as a member, that's incentive for me to not f- lie about a claim to try to get more money, right? So that's a pretty powerful change in all of the economic incentives across the insurance business. Yeah. And and I think for uh, 2021 give back, that's that's what they call that program, uh, mm-hmm. it was like 2.3 million. So right. I mean, you know, that's it's not, not nothing. It's not nothing. Um, and, and I think this company has done a very good job with social engineering and managing incentives. Entirely. And, Entirely. and it's a space that people generally really don't like <laughs> you know i mean Entirely. who yeah. who is like speaking glowingly about their insurance company jason N- nobody not me i mean that's the bottom <laughs> line you know it's one of the things that people what people do is they they talk to their parents or friends and they say okay who do you use and somebody says well i used to use so and so but whatever happened and i hate them and then somebody says well i've used this company for forever and they're okay and and that's who they call, right? Or, or they go online and do a search and get whatever's cheapest, right? And there's no loyalty. Um, and Lemonade's trying to disrupt that. In the, in the same way that SoFi and Robinhood and some of these other 
companies are trying to establish relationships with people that are just starting on their their life cycle of financial decisions to build that loyalty, right? And to build that trust now. Yeah. And and that's a big part of, I think, the the thesis that you have to buy with this business, right? It's a $5 billion business, just about. Um, and the, the revenue base is, is small for this company right now. I think a big part of the story is going to be, you know, bringing customers in and then finding multiple products for them and really building long, sticky relationships. They are approaching it with a very customer-centric uh, mindset. In some ways, it kind of reminds me of a little bit like a like a Vanguard type business, Jason, just maybe like dressed up in millennial branding. Yeah, I think so. Plus the fact that it's 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 there's a direct way as the as an owner of the business to profit, right? So Vanguard, the shareholders own the business. So there's like the ultimate alignment to ring out costs that's that's so powerful. With Lemonade, it's just a little tweak on that, right? Because it's a certified B Corp and it's publicly traded. So just because you are our customer doesn't mean you own it, but it's easy to own it and understand how all of the stakeholders are, are set to set to benefit. So Jason, the, the stock I'm going to be throwing out there as a recent purchase for me is, I, I think, similar in that it absolutely delights the users uh, that it brings in. And that's Spotify. It is. This is a business that probably does not need very much introduction for a lot of people. Perhaps if you're listening to the podcast version of this, um, you're actually listening on Spotify and you're you're consuming uh, podcasts using them. In which case, Spotify is grateful because that's a major push for them, and it's actually one of the main reasons why I'm interested in this business. Um, for folks that maybe have not followed this company for a while, uh, the standard thesis is they are a leader in music streaming. They're neck and neck with Apple Music. They've got 160 million monthly active uh, users uh, that are paid subscribers, paying $10 for an individual account, $5 for students, and then they have some family plans in there. And then they have 200 million ad-supported monthly actives. So right now, the money comes from their premium subscriptions. Uh, It's about 90% of their revenue. They pay out 70% of that revenue to music rights holders, and then the rest is theirs to cover costs. And Jason, when you think about those dynamics... Um, there's not a lot of control over price or cost because Apple Music's there as a company that runs right alongside them. And they have these pre-negotiated agreements with the rights holders, which dictate what their margin is and what they're able to cover with costs. Yeah, it's it's an interesting, but, but I think at the end of the day, it's the sort of business that there's a, if you think about the music industry, just the evolution of, of being, on the customer facing end of it, right? The provider of that content, whether you're a radio station or, or whatever, I think this is a company that's in the right space in that. And they're very dynamic, right? And it starts from their leadership. Yeah. And and I will say like, I have been looking for a reason to buy this stock. And the way that I keyed that up before, maybe, maybe signaled like, there's something great here. People like it. Um, they love the service. The The recommendations are fantastic. Like it is a sticky experience and product once you're in there. But I, I had hangups over the financial model, and I worried that they had uh, they were going to run into issues with pricing power because they're basically providing access to music, which Apple Music also does, and other competitors also do. And for those other competitors, those big tech companies, it's attack on service. You know, it's not the core way that they're making most of their money. Um, and I, I read a piece recently that kind of hammered home where I thought Spotify might be going, and really what was in front of this business. It's a it's a piece in Wired all the ways Spotify tracks you and how to stop it. And it is essentially the rundown on what they're able to do with ad targeting and how big advertising could be for this business going forward. And that was kind of the the light bulb moment for me. Um, 
you know, I, when, I think when 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 publications like Wired start pointing out all of these things, it's like there's something there, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Right. Like people embedded in the tech industry are noticing this. Okay. And like I think if you've been casually watching what they've been doing with acquisitions, you probably see this coming together a little bit. They've made heavy investments in the podcast zone. The ones that really got a lot of um, media coverage were the you know the acquisitions of Gimlet Media, uh, you know, which makes a ton of super popular shows, uh, and Bill Simmons, The Ringer. I, I think I would argue that like those those IP acquisitions are good and helpful, but they've made other acquisitions, namely Megaphone and Anchor, um, that are probably more important, and that's because these are acquisitions that are targeted at building up their advertising business and helping podcast publishers um, monetize their content. And what what I think is kind of weird about the podcast space, Jason, is uh, for the most part, ads are just hard-coded into the content. They're read by hosts. And so from an advertiser perspective, you can only target within a show. We don't have the dynamic ability to target the way we would with like Google search or YouTube or anything like that. So all the things we talk about with like SEO and and targeted ads that really are like, you think about like Facebook, right? So, I mean, thinking about an overlay between where the technology should be, it historically hasn't existed in, the, in these in these formats. Right. It's basically a billboard. You're showing the same thing to everyone because they happen to be in one space, in this case, listening to a show or listening to, to music, um, but you don't know that much more about them. And... I think Spotify is basically trying to do uh, what YouTube was able to do for video advertising in the audio zone. And right now it is a small piece of the pie for them. Uh, most recent quarter, 2 billion in premium revenue, 275 million in ad supported revenue. That second figure was up triple digits year over year, uh, which is darn impressive. Don't get used to those growth rates. It's going to be lower. They happen to be on weak comps, but still uh, the ad business is growing at twice the rate of the premium revenue. And I look at this, Jason, as something that has really compelling margin dynamics down the yeah, road. Exactly. Right. Those those rep those those ad revenues are almost all incremental margin, right? And those premium subscriber revenues are not. They're essentially the same margins as as the customer right before them. Yeah. And and if you've been following them for a while, you would look and be like, this has been a drain on their business. Um, it's actually produced negative margins for them. And the reason <laughs> right. for that is they've, they've had to build up all this infrastructure. It's the operating uh, scale to, behind it, yeah. To support it. And it's this is a business line that enjoys leverage. And, you know, pick a fang stock, uh, and that's probably the story, you know, is like you, you have to eat the losses up front to enjoy the scale down the road. Um, and I, I think that that's where we're going with Spotify's business, particularly its ad-supported business. Um I think over time, as they're increasing inventory, as prices start to increase and advertisers see strong ROI on the money that they're spending there, um, you're going to see some pretty interesting things happen with the company financials. And in some ways, Jason, it reminds me a little bit of like an AWS type segment um, for Spotify, where it's not necessarily what people know it for, but it winds up punching way above its weight class when it comes to financial contributions. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I, I want to push back a little bit too, like on the, the, you think about like the pricing risk of like the Apple musics of the world. I don't think Apple goes into any, any business looking to lose money. I think maybe Amazon music to some extent is like a bolt on, but if you think about what's, what's happening here, I think this is more almost like a New York times play. It's like people that are looking to pay a premium for access to certain things. Right. And on the music content side, everybody's 
it's a level playing field, right? So I don't think they're going to be in any worse position than anybody else. I think it's like the New York Times of streaming. Yeah, and and I think over time it's probably going to reach some parity with the ultimate contribution that we see from their their premium business. What what I think is maybe most compelling to me is, you know, I gave you that breakdown of it's like 160 million paid monthly actives and over 200 million um, ad supported MAUs. Um, the ad supported MAUs might ultimately be more monetizable activity for this business and better monetizable activity. And it's a bigger audience. Like th- th- there are probably more attractive margins to be had um, in digital marketing and they control the inputs and they have some upside there with, with price um, as they're able to prove effectiveness. It's a huge audience to be able to lay that out over. Right. That's the thing. It's always going to be bigger than you're, than you're paying than your paying audience. Yeah. And they've been yeah. criticized, I think, for a while for taking what's, I think, ultimately a customer acquisition strategy of of making it very easy to hop on free in a lot of people's cases, but also having these very discounted plans to get people into the ecosystem. But if you're, uh, if you're a paid subscriber, you're still getting ad revenue uh, for Spotify because of their podcast business. So even if you're paying to access music commercial free, those ads are still coming in. So I mean, I think there's a lot to like there. And I think it's a very defendable position. Um, on top of all that, you get into something that is uh, probably pretty helpful for advertisers and pretty helpful for content creators. And I think it probably separates them in the audio space. So um, that's that's my short thesis on that. But I've been looking for a reason to buy this stock for a while, Jason, and finally got it. Yeah, and I, th- I think your I think your thesis is strong. We'll we'll talk again in five years and see. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. I mean, that's that's the beauty of it. It's like we just you know we put it down on paper and then we revisit it uh, years later and see see how we did. Um, Jason, this this third company um, I mentioned I interacted with all of them. I got billed for Lemonade recently with with the renters insurance and the new month underway. Uh, I've been listening to Spotify nonstop, and we ordered uh, some record holders off of Etsy to decorate one of our walls in our place. So nice, uh, that, nice. That was that was my interaction with Etsy, and that's probably a pretty stereotypical purchase for this platform. I think I think it is, and it's but it's also interesting that the the platform continues to to expand to a larger addressable audience. Cause a lot of times people think of Etsy as like, it's a place that women go to buy cute things or men go to buy cute things for women. And it's certainly become far more compelling across a broader range of demographics and different products. And I think the thing to me, the way that I think about Etsy is just really simply, it's the premier website for both buyers and sellers and makers of custom and unique, unique items. Um, Amazon has made an attempt to get into it. It has its Amazon handmade business. Uh, but Etsy's really had kind of like a really good first mover advantage in this space. Um, and it's clear that makers continue to love selling on the platform. If you look at the rate of new sellers coming on, I think it's doubled over the past year, right? It's it's just a massive, massive number. They have over 5 million active sellers, um, around 90, 91 million active buyers, a number that's also continued continued to increase at a very high rate. And I bought because, you know, I think, I really think Etsy's going to continue to dominate um, in this space as the non-Amazon, right? It's almost like the anti-Amazon uh, place to buy the unique custom handmade and also secondhand items. Yeah, I, I think that there is something there where I almost look at Etsy as like, I'm going there for Christmas gifts. 
you know, or it's like if someone's birthday is coming up, like that's the website for the, for me. I know what I can get at Amazon, and it, Amazon almost feels like the big box retailer, Jason, to Etsy's, uh, you know, mom and pop shop around the corner, which is kind of an odd uh, way to explain it because it's a you know huge business, but that's the feel that it has entirely, entirely. And it, but but I think it's it's and it's the and the difference is that people when people buy from Amazon, they're just they're thinking they think of it as buying from Amazon, right? Even if it's fulfilled by Amazon and there's another merchant behind the scenes that's a small business. When you're buying from Etsy, you're buying from a maker, right? You're buying from the person that's making this thing for you, that's customizing it. Um, and that's that's really powerful. I, I want to highlight um, just some recent acquisitions, relatively recent acquisitions that show where Etsy's kind of focused on kind of where the puck's going to be, to use a Wayne Gretzky uh, term here. So bought Reverb maybe, maybe two years ago now. So Reverb is secondhand instruments, a really interesting, compelling business that has largely kind of been left to like guitar center and like some of these other like big box local companies um to do um that's become more and more popular depop uh it's pretty recently and this is fashion re-commerce right so secondhand goods and we've seen like three companies that have gone public in this space over the past so so far this year i think three that have gone public really popular with younger younger cohorts um, and I think it's huge growth. It's like a trillion dollar global industry. It's just absolutely gigantic. Um, bought the, the Etsy of Brazil, Elo seven, a couple million active buyers has 24 million visitors come to the website. Two thirds of its, of its, uh, gross merchandise sales come from repeat buyers. So it's a really sticky business. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's kind of all of the things that are happening. Growth rate slowing. Um, gross merchandise sales was around 13% up about 13% in the second quarter, but you got to remember Dylan, that was the second quarter of last year was kind of a bananas quarter. All of their regular lines went well. Plus everybody that didn't want one of those crappy hospital masks was buying handmade masks on the platform. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the story with 2020 and 2021 in tech has been like, don't anchor to any growth rate you see in any quarter. Like you just can't do it. And in the same way I mentioned with Spotify having, you know, triple digit year over year growth for its advertising segment, you can't get used to that number. It's going to be lower. Um, We're seeing lumpiness with a lot of these businesses. This one doesn't seem any different to me. Um, But I also, you know, that it might be concerning to see growth dip. I don't see any actual headwinds there. I think it's just tough comps. It's tough comps. And also, I mean, there's a little bit of like the reopening that's happening, right? People are shifting and trying to do a little more stuff in the real world versus online, which makes sense after two years of being locked in our basements. Um, but but again, I think you look out long term and double digit rates of growth should be should be a reasonable expectation for the business, um, even if those growth rates aren't 20, 30 percent that we want to see. Because the company's take rate is growing, the percentage of, of revenues is taking, it's providing more services and uh, that sort of thing, its revenues are growing and its earnings as it gets better operating leverage are continuing to increase. So I think those are the positives, even at a lower rate of overall growth, its earnings and cash flows could, could grow at a continue to grow at a higher rate. Jason, I know you're not the only fool that's that's pretty hot on Etsy, winds up in our in our premium ecosystem plenty, uh, as is the case with I think most of the companies we discussed today. Um, 
And, you know, I mean, we, we talked about the, the aha moment on the consumer side with a lot of these. Uh, always excited to get that perspective from our listeners and members as well. So, folks, if, if you have anything that's interesting on these companies or, or maybe a business that you're really interested in and, and feel like you have a really great relationship with and deserves to be on our watch list, uh, industryfocus at fool.com. You can always hit us up there or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. Jason, we are at our time, but it's always a pleasure to hop on with you and talk tech stocks. This was fun. I appreciate you having me on. Look forward to doing it again soon. Have an awesome weekend, my friend. Go dogs. <laughs> Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. <laughs>